But the digital seeker is really, you know, the interesting thing as well is that we, it's not just about Uber and Airbnb and whatever it might be. It is as much about the National Health Service in the UK building, you know, healthcare applications. The US Tennis Association in Florida building applications for that. Stitch Fix building things for fa- in the fashion industry that that rethink fashion. And so we can go, you know, in B2B, you know, uh, B2B industrial parts companies rethinking the seeker. So what was so interesting, you know, from the book is that it reveals that this is not the province of Silicon Valley. This is the province of winners in every major category of business operating digitally. And just the transformation of the thinking leads you to build these very unique experiences. Welcome to the Tribe of Leaders podcast. I'm serial entrepreneur and investor, Emmy Kirshner. And I'm known for sprinkling just a little bit of glitter throughout the streets of Philadelphia and on the stages that I speak while I help creative entrepreneurs stop struggling as the overworked admin in their business and become the CEO of their multi-six and seven-figure businesses. What has fascinated me over the years are the stories of success and failure that courageous entrepreneurs who have put it all on the line face as they change lives, disrupt industries, and become incredible leaders themselves. So if you're looking for a community of engaged entrepreneurs, and you'd love to get some resources and tools that can help you fast track your business, I invite you to join the Tribe of Leaders Facebook group. The link is in the show notes if you want to connect with us. And of course, the group is free to join. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Tribe of Leaders podcast. Today, I have Raj Dadada, who is the co-founder and CEO of Bloomreach, is an individual investor in over 20 startups, and is the author of a book from Columbia University Press, The Digital Seeker, which is a guide for digital teams to build winning experience. Raj, welcome to the show. I am so excited to hear about everything, but particularly the book, because I think teams and how we interact and how we work are changing like faster than we can probably record and plan for it. So welcome and share with me a little bit about you know your journey. Thanks, Emmy. It's great to be with you here today and yeah. excited to talk to you as well and excited to talk to you about the book and, and just the goings on in digital uh, these days. Yeah. So, you know, my journey, I've been an entrepreneur now out in Silicon Valley for 20 plus years. It's the third business that I've started, which is called Bloomreach. And, you know, I guess you do this long enough. At some point you become unemployable. You have no choice except starting companies. And so that's kind of where I am in life. Yeah. I said that to my parents a couple of years ago and my mom didn't quite understand. She was like, oh, honey, she's like, all the things that you've done, like you have so many skills. And my dad laughed. He's like, no, that's not it. It's like, (laughs) so used to just being in charge (laughs) and doing what you want. That's right. Exactly. No, it's been an awesome journey. And and this particular venture, Bloomreach, really started over 10 years ago and came out of really an observation that AI and machine learning technologies were being used by Google and Facebook, you know, in advertising, but then most people I knew were going online for great experiences for shopping and meeting and building and collaborating. And so why couldn't we use that to create amazing websites and apps for people? And so out of that, I started Bloomreach and it's now grown to be 500 person, you know, business around the world and serving 750 of the largest brands and powering a quarter of e-commerce on the internet. And so it's been a a fantastic ride. And that is, of course, what led me to then write the book. Which is amazing. So 
let's start a little bit earlier. Like, what was your journey in becoming an entrepreneur? I'm always fascinated because some people knew, some people fell out of, you know, not fell out of corporate, but decided that corporate wasn't their thing, but kind of fell into entrepreneurship. Yeah, I think I've always had the stubborn gene that makes you an entrepreneur. <laughs> right. But no, I can't say I had a plan to be an entrepreneur at all. I had gone to college. I finished college. I was maybe a year out. I was a researcher. I was an engineer in, in college. And so I was a researcher at Bell Labs in New Jersey and then spent uh, two years on Wall Street. And then, you know, was thinking about going back to school and happened to meet two individuals who were interested in starting a business. And at that time, it was about building broadband internet. And this is now really dating myself because it was uh, it was over 20 years ago. And yeah. And hey, Raj, would you help out as we get this business off the ground before you go back to school? And I said, sure. And then I just loved getting this business off the ground. It happened to be in Europe. I, I moved to Europe that summer mm-hmm. and then I kind of never looked back. And so after I got in there, I decided not to go back to school and started this new company with the two of them and ended up sort of not looking back from entrepreneurship. And most importantly, I think from those early experiences, and I was in my early 20s at that time, it was more just loving the process of creating something from nothing, despite how incredibly challenging it was. And that kind of got me into it. And I haven't looked back since. What was the biggest challenge you experienced in that time? You know, this venture that I started was really about like laying fiber optic cable in the ground. It was a huge capital intensive project to build broadband in Europe and a hundred cities in Europe. So it was a very capital intensive project. And, you know, I was totally inexperienced. I had these two co-founders who I assumed knew what they were doing. It turned out they knew less than I thought, but, uh, but they were <laughs> great people and great business people, I would say, but they were learning too. So I think my biggest challenge was recognizing that actually nobody has the answer to most entrepreneurial journeys except oneself. And so along the way, I came to that realization and ultimately developed the confidence to feel like, look, there aren't any great, there isn't a lot of great wisdom out there where somebody's going to hand you the answer on a silver platter or you're going to follow a dotted line to a destination. Ultimately, what you have is yourself. So you may as well trust yourself and your judgment. Absolutely. I think listening to your gut is so important. And if we did that more of the time, we'd have a lot less challenges. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if the gut is wrong, then the gut tends to adjust. So (laughs) one way or the other, it's going to take where you're going. Yeah. Of the 20 companies that you've helped start, do you have any favorites? You know, these are not 20 companies that I helped start. I started three companies. These are 20 companies I've invested in as an investor, an early stage investor when we're getting off the ground. I've had the good fortune of being involved in some really, really cool ones. I've been involved in a video chat company called Quickie that was later acquired by Yahoo. I've, I've been involved in a company called TrialPay that was an early payments company that did very well to help pay for digital goods. And you know, most recently, I'm on the board of a, of a small company called Zingtree, which is very cool. It's mostly about using technology to help automate workflows for call center agents and other such professionals. So wide range of technology companies, you know, all across the board. That sounds like so much fun. It is. It's fun. It's, you know, it's mostly investing in startups is not for the faint of heart. The failure rate is really high. So you almost don't do it for the money. You do it because 
It's just a way of working with entrepreneurs of the next generation who are starting you know, the mm-hmm. next thing that they're doing. And I had the good fortune of a lot of people who helped me along the way build the company that, that I have built. And so I almost see it as a way of giving back. Absolutely. I volunteer with the Young Entrepreneurs Academy and I get to teach 7th through 12th graders how to write oh. a business plan and pitch to investors. And it's, I mean, similar and different, obviously, in scale and scope, but it's really cool to see these kids come in. And I presume with the same enthusiasm that a lot of your startup founders are experiencing yeah. and like really amazing ideas and bring them into reality. Well, I, th- I think what's so cool, since certainly since the days that I, I started my first company, entrepreneurs have become younger and younger and have the courage to yeah. try more outlandish things, so, which I think is awesome. Yeah. Well, it's what drives significant change. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So Bloomreach has been said to be a little bit disruptive. What does that mean for you and how are you doing that? So, you know, the core tenet of Bloomreach is really about transformation of e-commerce. So if we just step back and we think about e-commerce and we all know Amazon.com and and Walmart.com and all the many, many e-commerce shops that we shop at every day. And e-commerce is like a 20-year-old industry at this point. It's like a late-stage adolescent or an early clueless adult, you know, in terms of maturity. And you know, the first 20 years have been just simply about doing e-commerce in many ways. It's been, if you talk to any leader of a brand, they would say, hey, we're launching our e-commerce business. It's great great news. We're doing e-commerce. And that has mostly been about what I would call standing up the store. And the software and the technology that has supported that, you know, for small businesses have been things like Shopify, which are amazing. And for larger businesses have been technologies from people like Salesforce and SAP and others. But they've mostly been about standing up the storefront. But it turns out that just because you stand up a storefront in this worldwide web doesn't mean anyone's going to come shop with you. They can still just as well click away and go to Amazon and buy the same product from someone else or buy something else. So Bloomreach was really founded on this idea that the next 20 years are really about standing out from the crowd, are really about giving people a good reason to come shop with you rather than go someplace else. And that, it turns out, is all about creating unique experiences online. And so our sort of disruptive mindset was sort of, hey, let's not go build software that helps you do e-commerce. Let's build software that helps you really stand out, maximize e-commerce, grow you know, really fast, and apply all the AI, machine learning, and all the other modern technologies help you go about doing that. And that, that has been the core thesis of the company and, and I think a lot of the roots of our success. I love that because it really is about standing out from the crowd. It is. And it's harder. It's easier said than done. You know, I mean, in the sense that whether you make jewelry or you make sofas or you're selling trinkets or whatever it might be, you know, how do you make sure that people remember that experience? Because just economically, you can't keep reacquiring customers over and over again. And customers have so many choices and people have so many choices. And so... The company has really distilled that if you step back and think about it and you think about the shopping journey, you can almost break it up into three fairly simple parts. First, a brand is going to engage you somehow. They're going to market to you, maybe on Facebook, maybe on Google, maybe via email, maybe via a friend, but ultimately they're going to engage you to their products and services. And second, once you you engage with a brand, they're usually going to inspire you or educate you. Mm-hmm. about their products and services. If it's, if it's a discretionary purchase, if it's a beautiful dress, they might inspire you to buy it. If you're buying a turbine, 
or a generator, they might educate you through a manual about why this particular generator is right for you and your needs, right? Right. And then finally, once you're ready to shop, they're going to help guide you to exactly the right product in a frictionless way, you know, so that you're encouraged to buy. And so Bloomreach has really taken those three pillars and built, you know, AI-driven software to help engage help inspire through great content and ultimately help people discover great products. As one does those things, it turns out, you know, more people end up with more pleasurable experiences. They remember your brand, they buy more, and they benefit from a more on-point, you know, web and digital experience. Yeah. I am very guilty of buying things on Instagram. Yeah. Because the, and exactly what you're saying, the experience is so cool. Like they've got their ads and the website and their funnel nailed. And then it comes in a really cool box that has some sort of, you know, funky message on it. <laughs> it feels very, yeah. And very individualistic. Like I am their only customer that they care about. Well, you put your finger on what we're seeing from so many winning brands all across, which is, you know, they're really starting to treat each individual as an individual. And so this trend of what's being called personalization, which is the idea that each individual shopper you know, will or user or is or customer will be unique. And so therefore can be served uniquely in a way that sort of harkens back to the old days where the person in the store knows you really well, but at mass scale mm-hmm. online. Yeah. Cause there's so much technology and information you can get about anybody. Right. Scary and super cool. Scary and super cool. And that's, you said it well, I mean, it's, I think this trade-off between the value to the consumer and you know what represents a breach of trust mm-hmm. so that debate play out all the time and the dynamics these days around facebook and what people think about facebook and whether they go one way or the other and right but on the other hand you know there's also lots of services actually we use you described one with instagram mm-hmm. i have never heard of anybody complain about shopify using their data to recommend great music that's right. fine right but on the other hand when you see an intrusive facebook ad it's kind of intrusive. So there's a fine line between, you know, creepy and amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just taking it all in. And I said, super excited when I get my super cool box that feels like they designed it just for me. <laughs> I'd love to shift gears a little bit. How has COVID changed the way that people are shopping? Yeah. So, you know, COVID has been like the mass accelerator of this set of trends. So yeah. You know, we were living in a world where e-commerce, I would say, was about 15% of retail spend pre-pandemic. And it was growing by about 15% year over year. And in one year, it went from like 15% to 30% post-pandemic. So effectively, we doubled the size of the e-commerce market in a year. We accelerated what would have taken five years to occur. And that happened because people, you know, Certainly, and many of them in an older generation that had not adopted e-commerce, all of a sudden were, that was the only game in town. And so you had new people online in a way that never was the case before. And then new categories that were very slow to be adopted, like grocery and autos, which were historically, you know, mostly bought offline, started to be bought online. And so it was kind of new shoppers entering the mix and existing shoppers opening their wallets in categories that they never had before. And so we just saw this profound shift that even more interestingly appears here to stay. And when we look at the trend line as stores have started to open up and at least in the U.S. as vaccinations have improved, we're seeing that trend continue. Mm -hmm. It's clearly a new habit. Yeah. Well, it's so much easier. 
everything just comes to me. That's right. And I'm in the school of thought that it's not that physical interactions will go away. It's that we'll raise the bar for those physical interactions. We will still go to a shop, but only to the amazing shop. We will still take the trip for work, but only for a really important business event. Otherwise, we'll, we'll do it online. Absolutely. I totally agree and resonate with that because that's my, like, I'll go to the little mom and pop shop because they have really cool, unique things and everything else I can just get online. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That seems to be, you know, very much behavior. Now we certainly also saw the interesting trend lines in human behavior as we went from, you know, the weeks where people were buying toilet paper to the week where we're buying eggs to the weeks where people are buying milk the weeks where people were buying haircutting equipment to, you know, and now, you know, you can see makeup sales through the roof. You can see dress clothing through the roof. You can oh, see yeah. gear, you know, selling off the shelves. So yeah, it's just, we see the, the human pattern, you know, in the data. But there's going to be some point in the future when we're all sitting around, like, remember when you couldn't get toilet paper? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of insane. Kind of insane. Exactly. We actually sent like one of those giant Walmart packs of toilet paper with my son because he was visiting my parents in North Carolina because they still get toilet paper. And my mom was like, he can come, but he might have to use a leaf that we exactly. sent for a whole bunch. Yeah. 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 It's kind of crazy. <laughs> kind of crazy. <laughs> Interesting times. So what was the inspiration for writing your book, The Digital Seeker? Yeah. You know, so as Bloomerish was expanding and as I was doing all the seed investing, people would say, hey, Raj, you know, you're involved with e-commerce companies representing a quarter of e-commerce, you're seeing the winners, you're seeing the losers, you're seeing the early stage startups that are thriving and the ones that are not. Tell us what makes the winners win and tell us what makes the losers lose. And I kept giving these talks. And so I decided to answer that question in this book. And that's what led me to sort of write the book, The Digital Seeker. And, and actually, what was so interesting about the book was that the insight that came, came out of it, and I did about 100 interviews of leaders and big companies like The Gap and small startups that were involved in investors and all kinds of people. And what I came away from that research exercise concluding is that counterintuitively, great digital experiences are built for the seeker, not the customer. And that's a bit of a counterintuitive thing because for 15 years or 20 years, we've been hearing about customer-centric marketing and how to serve customers better and all this other stuff. But it turns out that simply making your website serve customers better just isn't good enough to win anymore in this highly competitive web. And in fact, what makes the winners stand out is they build for deeper motivation. So to just give you an example of what I mean by that, if I was planning a family vacation, I would go out and I would say, all right, where are we going? Let's do some research of what kind of activities the kids might enjoy. I'll be a potential, I'll look into airline flights, I'll look into hotels, I'll look into a car rental, I'll look into excursions, whatever it might be. And I'm a possible customer for a car rental company, an airline, a tour company, you know, some outdoor gear that I might be buying, et cetera. And so I'm a customer online. I ultimately, before that trip, I create effectively a digital to-do list of all the things I'm going to go look into before I can put that vacation together. And it didn't used to be that way. It used to be that we called the travel agent and they took care of a lot of stuff, but we made it cheaper and more democratized and more choices available. But really what we've done is we've transferred the work from the travel agent to you. Right. And now you're doing it yourself. You just, instead of your your to-do list outside the house, you have your to-do list online. And that's what you're doing when you're putting that vacation together. And the winning companies say, you know what? 
I'm not going to just build for the transactional car rental relationship or the transactional outdoor clothing relationship. I'm going to ask the question, why are they interested in this outdoor clothing? Why are they interested in buying a dent? Why are they interested in this airline ticket? Why are they interested in this car reservation? And it turns out the seeker is seeking a memorable family vacation. The customer might be looking for a car rental. So one is a transactional thing. One is the underlying motivation for that transaction in the first place. And the winning experience is all in every industry. And we can go through a number of examples of this. They build for that underlying motivation, the seeker. They don't build for what the customer is there to buy. Right. I love that because I catered for years, had my own company for a while. And one of the things that I asked first from every client was, how do you see this experience? And nobody, they were on, I want this for dinner and that, you know, they hadn't thought about how they want their experience. And we're talking like weddings, baby showers, 50th anniversary parties, et cetera. And it's the same thing. It's really creating the experience and understanding the why behind the purchase. I can totally see that working in catering. And many years later, and when they're recommending it to their friend, they're not going to remember, you know, the one dish or the one, whatever it might be. They're going to remember that experience. Turns out to be what is back to what makes things memorable. It's that experience makes things memorable. And the experience usually speaking to an underlying motivation that that individual has back to the sort of personalized experiences that we were talking about earlier. So yeah, I've seen that across the board and we can see that, you know, if you step back and you think about a business like Uber, which, you know, is Uber a taxi company? Well, not really. It's actually a, I get people from point A to point B company, which is what the seeker is seeking. They're not, yes, they're going to go out and hail a taxi, but Uber then decided, you know what? The underlying motivation is to get from point A to point B predictably, safely, and at an affordable price. And so Mm -hmm. they built into the service Everything from payments to the mapping, to the drivers, to the car, to the reviews. And that is a composite collection of things pulled together to serve a seeker motivation. Yeah, absolutely. And funny too, because in the city here, I was walking to dinner with a girlfriend of mine and we contemplated getting an Uber, but it was going to take a really long time for what we wanted. And my girlfriend was like, can we get a taxi? I'm like, do they even exist anymore? <laughs> That's right. Well, they've certainly, you see that with taxi apps yeah. as, they've reacted, as they've reacted to that. And that's true. When you build for the seeker, you create a competitive moat that's very difficult for other people to compete with because you're not playing on the same playing field anymore. Yeah. It's incredible how it's changed how we get around. That's right. And so the, the digital seeker is really you know, the interesting thing as well is that we, it's not just about Uber and Airbnb and whatever it might be. It is as much about the National Health Service in the UK building, you know, healthcare application, the US Tennis Association in Florida building applications for that, Stitch Fix building things for fa- in the fashion industry that, that rethink fashion. And so we can go, you know, in B2B, you know, uh, B2B industrial parts companies rethinking the seeker. So what was so interesting you know, from the book is that it reveals that this is not the province of Silicon Valley. This is the province of winners in every major category of business operating digitally. And just the transformation of the thinking leads you to build these very unique experiences. Right. And how does that affect team building when you start building for the seeker? Well, it's a great question. And, you know, the, the sort of there's an entire section about what the team of the future looks like. And, and probably if I were to summarize that, Historically, if you were 
let's say you made sofas, you'd have the people who make the sofas and then the marketing team would market the sofas online. And that's the way kind of digital of the past would work is that digital was thought of as a marketing activity. In teams, in modern teams that are really thinking about the seeker and building unique experiences, the digital pieces and the physical goods are all part of the same product. And therefore, it's like one cross-functional team that often includes developers and marketers and designers and merchandisers and uh, privacy people and security folks and all kinds of cross-functional skill sets sitting around a table, all owning the entire product experience and treating the product experience as not just the making of the sofa, but the ongoing selling of the sofa, the merchandising of the sofa, the services that come you know, downstream often delivered digitally. So they organize that way rather than these functional silos of like, I've got the digital department over here and they do their digital thing. That's not the way, you know, modern companies organize themselves. So those teams are are very much about that. Yeah. So it's more collaborative and everybody knows what everybody's working. So everybody moves together. At the center is the seeker or the customer and the product that they're selling. And then everybody's around that. They're not organized by department in quite the way that they are in old world companies. And then each function is a little different as well. You know, just to use one example because data is so much at the heart of how you serve the seeker. You know, the merchandiser isn't just like guessing what style of clothing people like. The data is speaking to him or her about, you know, what the trends are. The digital marketer is all over the data in terms of what campaigns are working or not. So every data is touching every discipline. Right. That is so cool. So if somebody wanted to get the book, where can they find it? Yeah. So they can go to Amazon and they can search for the digital seeker. They can go to bloomreach.com slash digital seeker, and they'll be able to find a series of links. It's available now. Awesome. Well, everybody should download it or buy it from Amazon and definitely read it because I think it's going to be a fascinating read, particularly when you're projecting how it's going to work from team or for teams in the future. I love that thought process because it gives us so much to work with and look at what's not working right now and start changing it now. No doubt. I mean, you know, I think I really wrote this book for the digital team. And so if you're a member of that digital team, or if you're working with digital and you're trying to understand the context of it, the book should be a pretty good manual for how people can collaborate to win big in digital. And it is intended as much for the developer who's a little bit more technical as it might be for a marketer who's interested in getting the message out. It should be a story filled book of winners and how they succeed, and then a playbook for how to act on it. Cool. What was your biggest learning experience in writing the book? Well, I have great respect for authors. Let's start there. (laughs) It is one of those things that is a labor of love. And and I enjoyed writing this book, but it is definitely requires committed hard work. But also, you know, I think what I learned was just how instructive and helpful it is to put things down on paper in long form. It's a bit of a lost art in this sort of bite-sized world that we all live in from a media perspective. But the need to write something down and and present a coherent argument for something, you know, the bar is a lot higher when you're having to write that long form content. And and so that's what I learned. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. To make sure all your thoughts kind of coalesce and make sense in in order. That's right. Well, how long did it take you to write the book? I love asking people because some people do it really quickly and other people it's a journey. The writing itself was probably about 14 months or so, you know, to actually write the book. And then the publishing process was another interesting, you know, area of education, <laughs> yeah. getting that out there. But, but yeah, 
fortunately, it was on a topic that I knew pretty well because I've been doing it for many years. That helped. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. From a leadership perspective, any advice for somebody who's thinking about starting up a tech company or just a company in general? Yeah, I think there's a lot of really glamorous stories of entrepreneurship out there, and most of the reality is not that glamorous. In the grand scheme of things, it's a very real undertaking. And so so I think maybe what I would say is just as we've been talking about the why behind the customer, it's the why behind the entrepreneur and really knowing the answer to that question, not doing it because it's cool or not doing it because it's the clearest way to get rich because it's none of those things. It really, you have to do it because it's just, and maybe to tell you a story, I get this call very often from somebody working at some large corporate you know, company and they'll call me and they'll say, Hey Raj, I'm, I'm thinking about leaving and starting my business and starting a business. What do you think? And my first question is always going to be, have you quit yet? And if the answer to that is not yes, then I'm, my answer is usually, you know, you're probably just having a bad day. You probably just don't like your boss. You probably don't like how much you're being paid. Call me when you've really quit and you're serious about it because the number of people that talk about being entrepreneurs versus the number of people that actually do it, there's a wide ratio there. You got to really be in it for the right reasons. Yeah. And it's not glamorous. You're right. Not it's glamorous. A marathon that you have to kind of keep a steady pace at and put your head down. And I think having persistence is really the key to success. That's right. Awesome. Exactly. Raj, this has been so amazing. And I'm going to have to go buy your book. So, all right. Well, yeah. we'd love your thoughts, you know, in an Amazon review once you read it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed having you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Emma. You're welcome. Oh, and before I forget, where can everybody connect with you? What's the best place? Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn and that's a good way of connecting at Ardadada on Twitter as well. Another way to go. And and then I'm at Raj at bloomreach.com. Awesome. And for everybody who needs the reminder, you can get the digital seeker at Amazon and at bloomreach.com. So thank you. And for everybody who's listening, we will see you next week. Thank you so much for being a listener of the Tribe of Leaders podcast. I am so grateful for each and every episode that you tune in and listen to. And I hope that you get a ton of value that you can implement starting today. And I do have just a quick favor. If you wouldn't mind hopping on to wherever it is that you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating and review, it would help us tremendously so that the Tribe of Leaders podcast can be found more easily and help inspire other entrepreneurial leaders. 